take a moment to pray together. Father, we come to you today offering to you our praise for who you are and for what you mean to each one of us individually and then to us as the body of Christ. We're thankful that we can study the Word of God which you have given to us to tell us who you are and what it is you have done and who you expect us to be. Father, I pray that we will be in submission to the authority of your word today, that as we study this particular passage this morning, the truths contained within it will speak to each of our hearts. Lord, bless each one of us now today. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning by reading from Genesis chapter 46, beginning at verse 8. This particular portion sounds almost like you're reading from... Uh, Chronicles or something, but uh, the, the essence of it is what we'll focus on. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. And now the passage goes on and gives the, the sons and their sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanuk and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. And the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Aaron Onan di and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. And the sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva and Eob, and Shimron, and the sons of Zebulon, Sarad, and Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paden Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Now, I, I trust you're greatly inspired uh, this morning. <laughs> Passages such as this are recorded in Scripture partly because the scripture was written by a Hebrew to the Hebrews and by extension to us. And obviously, as you read a list of names like that, we think, whoa, you know, what does this say to us? And directly, it says very little. But to the Hebrews, it was very important because it established their genealogy. It established their connection with the past established their link between Abraham, who was the man chosen by God to, to bring the blessing of God to that nation and through that nation to the rest of the world. As we read in the passage a long time back in Genesis 12, uh, the scripture tells us that it would be through Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And obviously that is not because Abraham himself was specifically a person that we feel blessed by, but through him would come Messiah. And Messiah Jesus is the one who has blessed us and has come through the lineage of Abraham. And so as you read a passage such as this and the verses which follow, it simply is establishing the validity of that lineage. And that was very important to, to the Hebrew people. It's important to us, too, in the sense that we see uh, the, the coming of Christ in this passage. And we, we need to be aware 
of the fact that we deal in Christianity with a conundrum, with a situation where we have a God who is the God of the universe, who is almighty, who is all-powerful, who indwells the entire universe, and yet somehow miraculously he was able to to bring himself into human form in Jesus Christ. And that's, of course, the mystery of the Incarnation. And we will not fully understand the Incarnation, this side of glory. But we have scriptural teaching as to its truth. And we trust in that truth. And, and we are blessed by it. Hebrew names, especially many of those that we read in this passage today, may, may seem strange to us. Certainly all of us have known people whose names were Jacob or Levi, maybe, or Reuben. But when you get into some of the grandson's names, we think, whoa, you know, never heard of anybody with a name like that. The, the name seems strange to us partly because they named their children for other reasons than we generally do. I don't know, why did you name your children what you named them? Or why were you named what you were named? Partly it's because your parents thought, that sounds like a nice name, or they had an uncle that they really highly respected, or some movie star, possibly, you know, or some great sports figure. And so they, they named you, or you named your children, in such a manner. But generally, the Hebrews didn't do this. Certainly, at times, they named their children for a family member. You, you remember the situation with Zechariah, as he was dumb because he had unable to speak, because he had seen uh, the angel of the Lord and he had uh, doubted the word that his wife, although she was uh, an old lady, would have uh, a baby. And that would be John the Baptist. And when she told uh, everybody at the time of the birth what the baby's name was, they said, why would you name him John? There's nobody in your family with that name. Uh, so that implies, of course, that it was not uncommon to name a child for a family member or relative, or maybe even just because they liked the name. But normally, normally, Hebrews named their children names that had specific meanings. A, a name, for example, that expressed hope for the child, that this child would become someone or something someday, would serve the Lord in some special way or a name that was a prophecy for the child, or a name that expressed a characteristic of the child. And we've already looked at many examples of this. For example, Esau. We have seen that Esau was named for a physical characteristic, and that was that his, he was ruddy, he was, he was red. When, and even after he was born for a while, he was still red in complexion, and so he was called the red one, Esau. Jacob was named for a personality characteristic. He was called the supplanter, the deceiver. Uh, later, God would give him an, a second name, Israel, which means prince with God. And so sometimes more than one name was applied to a given individual. Isaac, do you remember why Isaac was named? His name meant laughter because the circumstance that surrounded his birth. <laughs> How could I possibly have a child at this age, you know? And, and so Isaac was, was born to Sarah even in her, well, she was about 90. It's a little bit unusual for childbirth. Uh, and, and so the circumstances surrounding the birth had to do with the name of, of that young man. Other examples include Moses. Moses means one drawn from the water. Remember, Moses was found in a, 
in a basket floating in the Nile River. Now, some people thought children were brought by storks, but they aren't. They're brought in baskets floating in rivers. <laughs> At least they were, he was, to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Joshua, whose name meant Savior. Isaiah, whose name meant May God Save. And Nabal, whose name meant Fool. <laughs> so fitting to his character. I can hardly imagine that that was the name his, kids, his parents gave him at birth. I mean, you know, that would be a bit of a, uh, of, a, of a nasty thing to do to your kid, you know, to say, ah, this is fool over here, you know. Uh, but that was the name he's given in Scripture because that's how he acted. It could be that many of the names that we have in Scripture that have a specific meaning were not the names given originally by the parent, but were a name that became applied to the person. It, it's like down through the pages of history, many of us aren't aware of the real name of some of the great people of history. One of the most important examples I can think of is Plato. You know, most of us think of Plato, that was his name, but that wasn't his name. His, his name was Aristocles. But he was called Plato because it was a nickname applied to him because he had unusually broad shoulders, and so he was called the broad-shouldered one, Plato rather than by his name. And, and, and this, this happens down through history. And so how many times did this happen in, in Scripture? We don't know. Some of the na strange names come to us because they reflect hope, they reflect prophecy, they reflect a physical or personality characteristic, as I've already noted. They, they may re reflect commemoration of a relative or, or maybe some event that was important in the family or the history of the nation. Circumstances at birth. Remember when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin? She said, your name is Benoni, son of sorrow. Because she was dying and died right after the birth of her son. But, but Jacob came along and said, I will not saddle my child with the name son of sorrow because that will always remind me of the death of my beloved wife. And so he renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. As a, as a name of hope that this young man would become the strength of Jacob in Jacob's old years. And uh, so that was a, a name that, that uh, was, was uh, prophetic, hopefully. It certainly reflected the desire on the part of Jacob for this young man. Some, some people were named as an admonition. For example, Zedekiah, whose name meant righteousness. And... All of us have certainly heard of Ichabod, right? Who was named at the time of disaster in Israel, and his name meant the glory of the Lord has departed. In this particular passage, we have the children of Leah mentioned first, and they're listed in order of their birth. We have the statement that Reuben had four sons. And secondly, we have the statement of the secondborn, Simeon, that he had six sons. But you'll notice as you read through that passage, nothing special is mentioned about Reuben. Reuben had four sons, period, and that's the end of, of it. And as you read later on in, towards the end of the book of Genesis, when, when Jacob gives his uh, prophecy concerning his sons, it's kind of a rehashing of the past two. He, he refers to Reuben as unstable as water. And it seems to carry on down at least through the first generation after Reuben. But we're told in this passage that Simeon has six sons, one of whom was the son of a Canaanitess. And, and we might say, 
Why is that specifically mentioned? Well, we can't be certain, of course, why. Does that mean that Shaul was illegitimate? We know from our previous study about Judah, remember? Judah married a Canaanitess. And the scripture talked about him marrying this Canaanitess. And two of the sons born to that Canaanitess committed vile sin in the eyes of God, and God snuffed him out. But yet one son did survive, born of that same woman. And he is in the list that we have read here this morning. Why is she not mentioned here when we come down to Judah? There is no mention in the passage we read about Judah, about his, one, his wife being a Canaanitess, none whatsoever. Who were the sons? Excuse me. Who were the wives of Jacob's sons? Who were they? Do we know their names? Do we know their country of origin? We really don't for most of them. Were any of them women from Paden Aram as Rebekah had been? As Leah and Rachel had been? Did Jacob see to it that his sons also got wives from the old family homeland up in Paden Aram, modern-day Syria? Or were those wives possibly daughters or granddaughters of Esau or of Ishmael or even of Keturah? Remember, Keturah by Abraham had six sons. And by now, they, of course, have had probably many children. Were some of the wives of the sons from those families? Apparently, most of them did not marry Canaanitesses. In fact, Kylan Delich, which, who is one of the old 19th century the two commentators on this, say that um, this is mentioned because it was so unusual. J Jacob's sons did not marry Canaanitesses, and therefore this was an unusual situation, and that's why it's mentioned here. But it's kind of interesting. It's not so unfitting to, to Simeon, because Simeon has been kind of a jerk all along, it seems. And for him to have married a Canaanitess um, probably would fit with his normal rash activities. But one of the interesting things that you'll find out if you follow through with this was that Simeon, remember the man who with his brother Levi butchered the population of the uh, city of Shechem? and uh, who probably was this instigator of the selling of Joseph into captivity, who was the one kept in prison by Joseph down in Egypt. This same Simeon is the tribe who would have the very smallest number of descendants at the time of the Exodus. The very smallest number of descendants. And later in the history of Israel, in the land, Simeon would be the one tribe besides Levi that seemed to be nebulous into, in, in terms of its place of existence. Simeon supposedly was given certain territory, but they ended up living within the confines of the greater tribe of Judah. And of course, Levi was scattered throughout the whole of Israel and was not given a specific territory. Very interesting when you think about that relative to how these brothers acted. We're told that the third son, Levi, had three sons. And by the way, his tribe would be the second smallest of the, tree, of the 12 tribes at the time of the Exodus. So Simeon and Levi, the two whom uh, Jacob said, these were rash men who caused me all kinds of trouble. They would actually reproduce as the two smallest tribes later on at the time of the Exodus. But from Levi would come 
two of the greatest men in the history of Israel, Moses and Aaron. Tells us a lot about the character of God. You know? If we are in disobedience, God does not bless. But even out of the midst of disobedience, sometimes God will raise something good up. It's like the story that certainly all of us heard it, have heard at one time or another, how a preacher was you know, preaching in a certain area, in a certain congregation, and it was a very liberal church, and the preacher didn't even believe in, in the incarnation or the virgin birth or the, uh, or the literal truth of the scripture, and he was just kind of a pie-in-the-sky, pie, uh, you know, pious platitude type preacher, the kind that most of us would just as soon stay home and do nothing as go listen to. And yet some people came to know Christ sitting in under such a ministry. And, and that's not because this man was so great. It's because God is faithful. And if some inkling of his word gets out there, God can use it to convict and change a heart. It's God who brings us into his kingdom anyway, not the finest of preachers. You know, Billy Graham is not winning people into the kingdom by his flesh or his strength or his ability. People are coming to Christ because God's spirit is working and changing lives. And so in spite of Levi's failures, God will raise up from his line not only the tribe of all the priests, but Aaron and Moses, two of the greatest men in the history of all Israel. And then Judah. Judah comes along. Five sons and two grandsons. And here we have this little parenthetical statement. But two of the sons, Ur and Onan, aren't counted because they were dead. They'd already been smitten, removed from the scene because they had sinned grossly in the eyes of God and purposefully against God. And therefore, God had removed them. Now, Judah, of course, would be the tribe through which Messiah would come one day. It's really interesting when you think about it. Because the remaining son directly of Judah by his wife, his true wife, was the son of a Canaanitess. And the other two sons were actually his sons by his daughter-in-law, the woman who had married the first two sons, but had not been given his third son. And remember, she played the role of a harlot and got impregnated by her father-in-law. And so the daughter-in-law became the wife in effect. Although not, he didn't take her as his wife, but she became the mother of these two. And yet it is from this line that Messiah would come, which is just such a powerful statement of the grace of God and the mercy of God. And helps us, I think, all to see that none of us can stand before God and say, I come from a finer line than Joe Blow or Sally Smith over here, and therefore I deserve more blessing from God. That's ridiculous. The human race is polluted from Adam and Eve to this very day, and there is no fine line amongst the human beings. We're all as guilty before God as any others. And therefore, it's God by His mercy that any of us stand here today, let alone that God would so choose to raise up a Messiah through a Canaanitess or, or you know, a Moabitess or whatever else was in the line coming down to the first century. What's interesting is that the tribe of Judah would become second only to the tribe of Joseph in size. The tribe of Judah would be almost four times as large 
as either Simeon or Levi at the time of the Exodus. And of course, a whole portion of Israel would be named for this tribe, Judah. And as I mentioned to you before, we would still commemorate that name in what we call the Hebrew people today, the Jews, the children of Judah. And then Issachar. Issachar had four sons. And then finally, Zebulon had three sons. Now, these are the descendants of Jacob through Leah. Where is Leah? Well, apparently Leah is already in the ground. Uh, there's nothing said about when she died. We know the record gives us very clearly Rachel's death and how she died and, and Jacob's mourning over her death and where she is buried. Where's Rachel buried? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, right. Rachel is buried at Bethlehem. Leah is buried at Hebron. Leah was buried at Machpelah. The scripture does not tell us about her death, though, nor does it say that Jacob mourned for her, nor does it tell us when she died. All we know is that in the next to last chapter of Genesis, it's, uh, J Jacob tells his son Joseph, I want to be buried at Machpelah in Hebron alongside Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah. So apparently he buried her before he actually left the land to go to Egypt. Well, verse 15 of the passage we read gives us a total of 33 persons. And you wonder, might wonder how uh, you can arrive at that because we're told uh, the names of six sons and of 23 grandsons, not counting Ur and Onan because they're not counted. They're subtracted. And two grandsons are named. That does not amount to 33. Dinah is named. So that brings us to 32, but it still doesn't bring us to 33. And so there seem to be two options as to how we get to 33. One is the fact that when it says in uh, this passage, verse 15, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Paden Aram with his daughter Dinah, all his sons and his daughters, plural, numbered 33. And so we might assume that there was yet another unnamed daughter besides Dinah who made 33. Kyle and Delich, again, referring to that, uh, those commentators, count Jacob to make it 33. Well, whatever way you arrive at 33, there were 33 relative to the family having to do with Leah, which is very interesting because that's exactly half of the total number that go in. So that means the other three wives are only responsible for the other half of the... Uh, I mean, I, to me, it just is constantly... I mean, the mercy of God keeps showing through here. Leah, the unloved wife. <laughs> and yet she produces half of his offspring. You know, I mean, God blessed her. God became close to her because she wasn't loved by Jacob as she ought to have been. You know, you know, God is a father to us all. And to those of us who have greater need because somehow in life we have been given a raw deal, we might say, God is closer. God means more in some ways to, to people who just simply don't have the human companionship that they ought to have in this life. And that's why it's so sad when you run across a person who has had a rotten life and they don't even know the Lord. They don't have hope. They just don't have the opportunity to have what God will give them. Even though there's no flesh on God, you can't go around and feel God. As you study the Word and as you believe the faith becomes so strong, He is more real 
than any of you sitting in this room to an individual who trusts in Him, really and truly. And, and you know Him to be there. And, and He is a God of all comfort, who comforts us with the comfort whereby we are supposed to what? Comfort one another. So we give some of that flesh to one another by serving God in that way. Now, let me just ask this interesting, what I think is an interesting question. Was Jacob's family so unusual that God set aside the law of averages in the production of this family? Because as you read through the list, you will find there are only two women, two girls mentioned in all of this list of descendants. Dinah and a granddaughter named Sarah, S-E-R-A-H. Those are the only two named. Does that mean that Jacob only had sons but one daughter? He had all these sons, one daughter, all these grandsons and only one granddaughter? You, you probably know that it's been, uh, you know, the studies show that typically around the world in most situations for every 100 women born, ladies, girls born, there are 105 males born. This is the average. So you're slightly more likely to have sons than daughters. In our case, <laughs> we had four daughters, so we beat those averages. But anyway, <laughs> this, is, this is the way it is. So if that's true, what in the world is going on here? Why is it Jacob has you know, all these descendants and they're all male except for two? I mean, God could have intervened and, and that could be the way it was. But as I read to you in this particular passage, when it refers to daughters, it gives the word in plural, indicating there were more daughters than just Dinah. And the word granddaughter is also given in the plural, indicating probably there were more granddaughters than just the one. So, if that's true, why are they not mentioned in the passage? Well, I think the only answer we can really set forth with any degree of strength here is the recognition that this was a patriarchal society. It was a patriarchal society. Therefore, when a daughter married, she was no longer part of the clan because she married into another clan and her children would be of her husband's lineage, not of her lineage not of her family's lineage. And therefore, she does not count in the lineage of the patriarchal society because they belong to another patriarchal society. And it's very probable, therefore, that Dinah never married. And maybe Sarah, the granddaughter here, never married either. But all the others were married, and therefore they were part of other families and probably did not go to Egypt with the family. Now, the wives of the 12 sons were in Egypt or went to Egypt if they were still living, and we assume most of them were, but they're not even named and they're not even counted in the listing of the families, which uh, in our society today, with the orientation that has developed here, we would probably consider strange and uh, probably inappropriate. But uh, we have to remember Moses lived within that patriarchal society and therefore he recorded what he felt should be recorded. Let's look at verse 16 of Genesis 46. The list goes on. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Hagi, 
Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Erodi and Areli. And the sons of Asher, Imnah and Ishva and Ishvi and Bariah and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. Now, I hope you're jotting these names down as possible, you know, I mean, good possibilities for children or grandchildren or whatever here. Um, they would be unusual, some of them. And these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. And she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher, and Ashbel, Gera, and Naaman, and Ahi, and Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and, <laughs> and Ard. <laughs> what, do, what do we have? Manny, Moe, and Jack? Or <laughs> Here we have Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel. And she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Well, we remember the complication that came when Leah, because children were no longer born to her after her sixth son, uh, she gave her handmaid, Zilpah to her husband as kind of a concubine and uh, through her were born two sons, Gad who in turn had seven sons and Asher who had four sons, one daughter and two grandsons. That is in the list. This list does not by any means include all the grandsons and granddaughters who would yet be born. So, so through Zilpah Jacob had 16 descendants who are noted in this particular passage. I should mention that the scripture in no way mentions what happened to Zilpah or Bilhah, the other concubine. Does not tell us what happened to them, doesn't tell us whether they went to Egypt, whether they died in Canaan, died in Egypt, where they were buried, doesn't say what happened to them. Well, scripture, by the way, doesn't mention uh, the death of the sons either in terms of when they died, except in the case of Joseph. And we assume they were all buried in Egypt because that's where they died. In verses 19 and, and 22, we find that Rachel is the only one of the wives to be mentioned twice, both at the beginning and at the end of the lineage. All the others are only mentioned a single time, but Rachel gets a double mention. Her two sons were Joseph, to whom two sons had already been born in Egypt to this Egyptian woman, and Benjamin. You know, it's just kind of interesting to me. To Joseph, through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would ultimately be born more children than to any of the other tribes. 
The tribe of Joseph would be the largest tribe at the time of the Exodus, 85,000 males. And of course, you double that at least for females, would be born to the tribe of Joseph by the time of the Exodus. 85,000 to Joseph. Uh, and that's interesting because, of course, Joseph came very late in the list. I mean, you know, next to last of the sons and then Benjamin the very last. And yet his tribe would be the largest of all the tribes of Israel at the time of the Exodus. And then we have the very interesting little problem of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin's the baby of the family here. Now, the baby's not a baby. He's probably around 24 at the time of the migration into Egypt. And so we look at this and we find of all of the sons of Jacob, Benjamin has the most children, most sons. Ten. Ten are born to Benjamin. Now, this young man, being 24 at the time, has, you know, if we could say he already has 10 sons, he's been one busy boy. And he must have had multiple wives, and there may have been multiple births. But I don't think that's the answer. I don't think that that's the explanation for this figure uh, here at all. I, I think that we're talking about all of the sons that would yet be born to Benjamin, some of which may not have even been born. I mean, Maybe none of them had yet been born, been born to Benjamin at the time of the actual migration. But they all were born before Jacob died in Egypt, probably. They're mentioned because, with few exceptions, the names that are found in the passage that we have read, this long list of, of names that seem so strange to us, are mentioned because they are the founders of major clans within Israel. Well, we already know the tribes, you know, Asher and Naphtali and Dan. These are the tribal names. But within that are clans. Each tribe has numerous clans, and those clans are descended for the most part from the named grandsons in this passage, grandsons of Jacob in this passage. And although other grandsons and granddaughters would be born, they don't seem to be the progenitors of major clans as these were. So that's the reason Moses names these when he gives the list at this particular time. Now, as Westerners, who, whose thought is mostly descended from the way the ancient Greeks thought, you know, very rationalistic, uh, very oriented towards empirical thinking, we say, well, if the scripture says Jacob went into Egypt with 66 people, there had to be 66 people, you know, one, two, three, you could count them at the time they crossed the border. But you have to realize these aren't Western thinking people. These are not descendants from the Greeks in any way, shape, or form. These are Oriental people. They think with a different style of thought. And to the ancient Hebrew mind, uh, some of those who made the trip may not have even been born yet, but they were as good as having been born because they were, quote, in the loins of their father or their grandfather. And so you have this in the loins concept. We, we don't normally think that way, do we? Of the fact that this young couple who have just gotten married and they have no children, they are pot potential parents, but in God's eyes, their children are already in existence. 
because God knew every person before the foundation of the world. And God is not surprised. Oh, well, look at that. They had a son. <laughs> God, God is already aware of all of this. In fact, the scripture tells us that he has ordained us from before the foundation of the world. And so this in the loins concept is part of Hebrew thinking. And it's not irrational at all. It just seems foreign to the way we think. Turn to Hebrews, if you will, chapter 7. We'll see this illustrated. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 4. Now observe how great this man was, referring to Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, again referring to Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. And of course, you know, the Hebrews is trying to point out the fact that this Melchizedek was a great one. And, and most of us, I think, believe that he was a theophany, a Christophany here. And so he's blessing the blessed one is <laughs> greater than Abraham. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on, that he is eternal. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Literally meaning ancestor there, because Abraham was not the father of Levi. He was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Levi. But the term in Scripture, father, often does not mean literal father, but means ancestor. And so this is teaching us the concept that as Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, Melchizedek was in fact blessing Levi, and Levi was in fact paying a tenth to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of his great-grandfather. Is that great or great-great? Whichever it was, anyway. His great-grandfather, yes, his great-grandfather. And so this is, a, this is a perfectly legitimate concept within the thinking of the Hebrew mind, and I think that's the explanation of Benjamin having ten sons, although he's the youngest of the boys and couldn't possibly have had ten sons already uh, unless something very unusual happened. And so what we have is these will be born to him yet during the lifetime of his father Jacob in, in Egypt. So in effect, they went down to Egypt with him. Then uh, Rachel's handmaid Bilhah, remember, Rachel couldn't have any more children, she thought, and so she gave her handmaid to uh, Jacob as a wife because of this concept that was common in the world at that time that if you give your handmaid to your husband and she gives birth, that child is yours because she is yours and she is not the literal wife of your husband and so the child becomes yours. You know, she is a surrogate mother in effect. So anyway, he, Jacob ends up with all these wives and Bilhah is responsible for the last two sons in this list, and that is Dan, who had one son, and Naphtali, who had four sons. Now, if we add the numbers together that we have read in these passages, in 15, 18, 22, and 25, we arrive at 70. 
the 70 that is mentioned in the last verse that we read, verse 27. But in verse 26, the number mentioned is 66. So we understand the 70 refers to everybody, including Joseph and his two sons who were already in Egypt and refers also to Jacob. So if you take those four from the 70, you get the 66 who came down with Jacob into the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 22. This confirms the figure given in Genesis. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, the total corpus, including Joseph and his two sons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now we have to understand, of course, that verse is speaking in, in the sense of figurative thought. It's not literally saying that if you counted up all the descendants of Jacob that you would have the same number as there are stars in heaven. I mean, that's, of course, absurd. We know that. Uh, but, of course, we have to also recognize in the day in which the, the Bible was written, the day of Moses, the only stars you knew about were the ones you could see. And it's been estimated that if you could walk all around the world and count all the separate stars, even with good eyes, you could only count about 6,000 stars you know, individual, clearly defined stars. Whereas, of course, we know there are hundreds of trillions and trillions of trillions uh, of stars out there. So it's, it's a figurative speech. Your, your children will be like the stars of the heaven in, in number. Well, we know when they, ended, when they actually exited the land of Egypt to go to Israel, there were about two million of them altogether, give or take a few, which is a long ways from the number of stars in heaven. But again, that's a figurative speech. Now, in Genesis chapter 48, we have an inference that I think is significant. We have an inference that Jacob had more grandsons and granddaughters than are listed here. In Genesis 48, verses 5 and 6, Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, he's talking to Joseph, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Jacob claimed Ephraim and Manasseh as his sons. In other words, he elevated them from grandson status to son status, even as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance, which implies that Joseph had other children besides Ephraim and Manasseh. And therefore, we have, I think, a clear understanding that there were other grandsons and other great-grandsons born to Jacob than are in the list, and that there were granddaughters and daughters born to Jacob and great-granddaughters that are not even inferred in the passage that we assume were born also. So what we have to understand is the named people are so named because later on in the chronology, they will have a special significance. They will be clan leaders of important clans. Those that aren't mentioned, they were there, but they played no major role. Turn to see this illustrated in Numbers chapter 26. Moses is commanded to take a census of the people. Verse 4. Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord has commanded Moses. 
Now, the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were, and now we have this big long list, which we're not going to read, but just a little bit of it here. Reuben, Israel's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the family of the Hanakites. That's a clan within the tribe of Reuben. Palu, the family of the Paluites. That's another clan within the, fam the tribe of Reuben. Of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites. Of Carmi, the family of the Carmites. These are the families or the clans of the Reubenites. And those who were numbered of them were 43,730. Now those four clans or whatever it is there, one, two, three, four, those four clans probably didn't each have 10,000 descendants. There were probably other clans, but they were not significant clans as far as the record was concerned. As you go down through the whole tribal list, you'll find the same thing. All right, back to Genesis chapter 46. Let me read this passage, and you can kind of chew on it in your mind, because we don't have time to develop it today. But there's some wonderful things in this passage. Genesis 46, verse 28. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as they appeared before him, as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? that you shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. There is high drama in that passage. Certainly one of the greatest encounters of history, uh, maybe even in some ways greater than Joseph's ultimate revelation of himself to his, to his eleven brothers is the encounter between Jacob and Joseph after probably 22 years. Well over half of Joseph's life. And for a son who was the beloved of his father, this has got to be drama at its highest. And there's some really significant things which I've outlined for you at the bottom part of your outline there that, that I think we need to note as far as what happened here and how Joseph demonstrates what God has done in, in his life and, and how that illustrates to us today the kind of attitude we need to have and to whom we give credit for all that we have and all that we are because we certainly have no right to take credit for ourselves because it is of God that we are blessed and it is of God that we have the next breath to draw. And uh, Je Joseph is a prime example of the truth of that concept.